technical difficulties will be resolved momentarily. I think you can hear me all is well. I had hoped that you'd be greeting one another for just a little bit longer, giving me time to bring the pulpit here, but it was not the case. Welcome. It's wonderful to see all of you. It's a great privilege to worship our great God and Savior together. I invite you to turn in his word to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 25. John 12, I'm oh, sorry, John 2, verses 12 through 25. Let's hear God's, God's word together. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that in your presence there is fullness of life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, grant us this morning to drink deeply uh, from your presence and from uh, fellowship with you. Grant us to be renewed by your presence. Grant us to experience the joy that comes from knowing you. Cause us to behold your glory as it shines brightly in your son Jesus. Grant us by faith to see your majesty and respond with faith, obedience, and adoration. Father, we know that you are the one who must open our eyes, that we might see the truth about who you are and what you've done. And we pray that through your Holy Spirit you would do that this morning. Grant us, Lord, to be instructed by your word, to be corrected, to be challenged, to be comforted by Holy Scripture. Address each and every one of us this morning, Father. Bless the proclamation of your word, we ask. Amen. One way to determine uh, how God has gifted you is to notice the things that bother you. So for instance, let's say someone came into the church building and uh, there was a bit some wetness on the floor and they slipped and fell and hurt their ankle. Um, one group of people, now I, I grant that everybody initially would wonder about how uh, the person is, but one group of people would be especially concerned about the well-being of the person who fell. They would rush over there and say, how are you, are you okay, how's your ankle? They're people-oriented. There's another category that says this ought not to have happened, this is the result of bad procedures and practices, uh, we, sh we should have cleaned the church earlier, 
We should have a better process for this. This is unacceptable. This is sloppy administration. We need better procedures, procedure-oriented. And then there's the, the principal people uh, who come on the scene and, and ask themselves, what does the Word of God say about this? <laughs> the Word of God says that we should love our neighbor. Our failure to mop up the, the floors and dry the floor before they came in is a failure to act in line with Scripture and the principles of Scripture. It ought not to be. Now, granted, admittedly, there's overlap in these categories, but most of us could probably place ourselves in one of those three groups pretty readily. And what that little thought experiment demonstrates is that the things that bother us reveal a lot about us. They show what matters to us. And the same holds true for Jesus. In this passage, we see that Jesus is incensed, deeply disturbed by something. And in this passage, we get a glimpse of the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. We get a glimpse of what drove him and what he was passionate about. Just hounded by technical difficulties this morning. It's, it's a good sign, incidentally. Whatever there's opposition to the work, it's, it means we're doing something well. There it is. Okay. We're good? We're good. Uh, so yeah, we see the heart of Jesus in this passage. He's deeply incensed. He, cha he challenges the status quo in the temple, and we see he, what, what drove his ministry. We'll note especially three things this morning. First, Jesus displays a fierce allegiance to the honor of God. Jesus display, displays a fierce allegiance to the honor of God. Second, Jesus is the true temple. And third, Jesus knows the truth about every person, knows us inside and out. But before we jump into this passage, we need to address uh, one difficulty that scholars often point to. And the difficulty is this. If you compare John's gospel to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will notice that in those gospels, the temple cleansing event in the ministry of Jesus happens at the end of his ministry, uh, just before he is crucified. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John, the temple cleansing event occurs at the beginning of his ministry, as it's getting started out. So the question is, how do we understand that? How do we reconcile these different gospel accounts? Uh, one option is to say that John took an event that happened at the end of Jesus' ministry, and he moved it to the beginning of Jesus' ministry for thematic reasons, because it fit better with what he was saying about Jesus at this point in the gospel. I think this view has some problems, though, uh, one problem is nobody seems to agree on what the theme is, what exactly John is reinforcing about Jesus by moving that event. So there's no consensus on that point. There are also certain discrepancies between the two temple cleansings. The second option is to say that there were actually two temple cleansings, one at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and one at the end a few years later. And I uh, think that that's the more likely option, and I think that's the natural reading of this opening sec uh, section of John's Gospel. Uh, there's an emphasis on chronology, and this suggests that this event took place in, its, uh, in the sequence that we have in John. In any case, what this episode shows us supremely is Jesus' zeal for the honor of God. He goes up, there are three big celebrations in Judaism uh, during this period uh, where Jewish men were expected to go up to Jerusalem. Passover was one of them. Passover would have been celebrated usually at the end of March and early April. 
And this was, of course, a commemoration of how God saved his people from the angel of death. The angel of death went through the land of Egypt. The firstborn of God's people was spared. The angel passed over the houses of the faithful. So Jesus shows up in the temple, and instead of hearing the solemn murmur of prayer and adoration, he hears the bleeding of sheep. He hears the noises made by animals. Uh, There's all the hustle and bustle of economic transactions happening everywhere, and he is incensed. Now, we should be clear, the main issue here is not that the people coming to worship at the temple were being exploited. Uh, The fact that there were sheep and oxen and pigeons present was actually a good thing for the worshipers. Keep in mind that people had to come often from far away to worship in Jerusalem, and it was very difficult to bring a sheep from afar. It was just convenient to show up at the temple, you paid for the sheep, and you offered it as a sacrifice. So it was providing a real and legitimate service. Uh, There were also money changers. Keep in mind, people came in from all uh, corners of the Roman Empire, and there was different coinage that they brought with them, different currency. And so these money changers uh, were there to exchange the temple currency for the money they brought with them to ensure a level of consistency. They did this for a fee, but it was perfectly legitimate. It met a real need. The problem wasn't so much the activity as such, but where it was happening. It was taking place in what's called the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple. And it was essentially undermining the worship of God. It was desecrating the purity of the worship that ought to have been given to God. This economic activity ought to have taken place elsewhere. So Jesus is incensed. He fashions a whip out of cords, and he drives out the merchants. Uh, He drives out the animals. Uh, Coins fly everywhere. And he rebukes the the pigeon vendors and tells them to take their pigeons and leave. Uh, He's disrupting what's happening in the temple. Now, by way of a historical note here, this was probably not at like the level of a riot. Okay, people weren't streaming out of the temple. Uh, Part of the reason we know this is Roman troops didn't show up. There were Roman troops nearby in the fortress of Antonia and uh, they they would have had a view of what was happening in the temple. And if this had been some sort of mass exodus, they would have intervened. So their non-intervention points to the fact that while it was disruptive, it wasn't exactly a riot either. Why was Jesus so incensed and bothered by this? He tells us in verse 16, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The temple was meant to be a place where God is adored, where prayers are offered up. But instead of the pure worship of God, there was commercial activity diminishing that worship and diminishing the honor of God. And it was because God was being dishonored that Jesus reacted the way that he did. So great was the zeal of our Lord Jesus Christ for the honor of God that it would eventually result in his death. Verse 17, uh, his, di- his disciples, now it's not clear if they remembered at that very moment in Jesus' ministry or later on, looking back on it, but in any case, they remember uh, Psalm 69, verse 1. Uh, it's a psalm written by David, and David describes the hostility that he's experiencing because of his commitment to the name of God and to the temple of God. He's enduring opposition and hostility because of his loyalty to the Lord. And the disciples of Jesus see the way that that aspect of David's life is fulfilled in Jesus. So great was his passion for the glory of God that it would eventually consume or destroy him. His zeal for the name of God would result 
in his crucifixion and death. Why was Jesus incensed? Because God was being dishonored. And Jesus cannot stand idly by when God is being dishonored. He cannot be indifferent when the glory of God is trampled underfoot. He must act. And and in this episode uh, of his ministry, he shows us what it means to have a zeal for the glory of God. It means when you see God being dishonored, you don't look on his dishonor with indifference. You are provoked, you are roused from your complacency. You take decisive action. You do what you can within your sphere of authority to cause God to be honored. We see this kind of zeal often in Scripture in the great men and women of God. For instance, we see Moses coming down the mountain with the tablets and the laws on the tablets. And when he sees Israel worshiping a false god, worshiping in an idolatrous manner, uh, we're told that his anger burned hot. And he took those commandments and he uh, threw them against the ground and broke them at at the foot of the mountain. He was incensed. There was a zeal for the honor of God. And when he saw God being dishonored, he was angered. Psalm 119, 136, the writer tells us, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He doesn't look at God's law being violated and says, Ah, it's too bad. Oh, well. When he sees God's name being dishonored through the violation of his commands, he weeps. He grieves over the dishonor done to God. Those of us who love the Lord and want him to be exalted won't be indifferent when he's dishonored. We will will exhibit the same kind of emotional investment in dealing with the thing that's obscuring God's glory. We will be especially committed to the purity of the temple or the church. Now, obviously, we don't have a physical temple today. Uh, Israel's temple was a temporary institution that pointed to Jesus, and now that Jesus has come, it's obsolete. Nevertheless, the New Testament does speak of the church as the temple of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God dwells in the midst of his people in the church through his Holy Spirit, and this is now his sacred dwelling place. That means that the church is supposed to reflect the character of God to the world. The church is supposed to show the world uh, what a renewed humanity looks like, what life looks like under the reign of Jesus Christ. We are to be a community marked by unity, sacrificial love, a commitment to morally pure living, and a commitment to doctrinal purity. And when these things are compromised in the local church, when we begin to tolerate immorality and loose living, uh, when we deviate into doctrinal compromise, when our unity is disrupted by infighting and suspicion and gossip, it's not just that the quality of our shared life together goes down, it's that we dishonor God. To care for the glory of God means that we care about the purity and holiness of the local church. We have the same kind of zeal for our local church that Jesus had for temple worship. Because we recognize that the glory of God on earth and the purity of the local church go together. 
The measure of our zeal for God is our commitment to the local church and desire for its purity. Does that describe you? Can you look at the troubles that the church has and say, oh, well, you know, that's not good, but, you know, I'm, pretty, I'm doing pretty well in my devotional life, so it's okay. Is that your attitude? Or do you, uh, or, or do you care profoundly about the compromises in the church? And do you intercede with God on behalf of the church that he would intervene to cause his truth to shine in our midst, to uh, heal division in our midst? One indication that you do indeed care about the church is you pray for it. You intercede before God for its leadership and its various ministries, rifts that might be uh, going on among its members. But there is a heart for the church where there is a heart for the glory of God. And of course, if we care about the honor of God, then we will care about the places in our personal lives where he's being dishonored. That's where the Reformation must begin first. Every place where we are rebelling against the command of God, where we are dishonoring him, has to cause us to to respond with this kind of holy zeal, with a desire to kill everything in our life that is contrary to his will. Sin should grieve us, not simply because of the painful consequences it can bring in our lives, but also because of the dishonor it does to the name of God. Like when you violate the command of God, it should weigh on you, not simply, oh, this is gonna make my life harder, but I have trampled on the glory of my heavenly Father. That should weigh on you. And you should desire with all of your heart to be done with that rebellion. I should note that sometimes as Christians, we have a substitute to genuine repentance. And the substitute works like this. Uh, We recognize that there are uh, places in our lives where we are not doing what God has called us to do, where we are not fulfilling the responsibilities uh, that he has given to us. And so we feel bad about that. We, we get down on ourselves. And we confess it to God, and we ask for forgiveness. But there is no genuine commitment to change course. We substitute feeling bad for a genuine transformation of life. We say, God, I feel bad, forgive me. But there is no solemn commitment to never doing it again. Genuine repentance means that not mainly that you feel bad, Certainly you should seek God's forgiveness, but genuine repentance includes a solemn desire to live a new life and never to do evil again. Whatever it is that you've done to displease God, you say, God, please give me the grace never to lash out at my children again as long as I live the way I just did. Give me the strength of your Holy Spirit to put to death this thing in my life that is contrary to your will. How would you describe your repentance? When the Holy Spirit exposes something that is contrary to God's will, Is there a genuine desire to kill it, put it to death, do what it takes to remove it? Or is there a kind of complacency? Oh, Lord, forgive me. Thank you for your forgiveness. No intention of changing whatsoever. That's not biblical repentance. That dishonors the name of God. First thing thing that we see about Jesus, then, is his fierce loyalty to the honor of God. Second thing we see, verses 18 and following, is that he is the true temple. So, Jesus has undertaken this massive disruption to the status quo, and naturally the temple authorities want to know, what's your basis for doing this? Can you provide a miraculous sign to prove to us that you have the authority to do what you're doing? And of course, on the face of it, that's a pretty reasonable request. 
Who gives you the right? Give us a sign. Uh, but there are actually some problems with that request. First of all, if they thought that Jesus was really unhinged, right, somebody who wasn't entirely in his right mind, they wouldn't have attempted to engage him in dialogue. They would have removed him, imprisoned him, restrained him. There are procedures for doing that. So the very fact that they engage him in this dialogue suggests that they recognize that he has a certain level of credibility. And this is further reinforced by verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So apparently he was performing lots of signs when he was there in Jerusalem, which witnessed to his authority. And they were not responding with faith to those signs. So this question, what authority do you have, or what miraculous sign can you do, is an expression of unbelief. And that helps to explain why Jesus' response is somewhat cryptic, but mysterious. Prove that you have the authority. Jesus says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Must have been shocking. Uh, they, uh, they take him to mean that if we destroy the physical structure, this massive structure, then Jesus is claiming to be able to build it again in three days. How's that possible, they say? It took 46 years to get it to its present state, and you're going to build it in three days. What they didn't realize is that he wasn't speaking about the temple structure as such. He was speaking about himself. He was referring to the temple of his body. His body, the temple of God, would be broken and ruined in death, but then he would rise again, conquering death, and that proves that he has authority to uh, determine how God should be worshipped in his house. Now, this is a crucial statement that Jesus makes about himself. He identifies himself, his body, with the temple. Uh, most of us recognize that the Old Testament bears witness to Jesus. But we tend to have a pretty limited understanding of how it does that. Most of us tend to think, when, when we ask the question, how does the Old Testament point to Jesus, we tend to think pretty narrowly in terms of verbal predictions, explicit statements from the prophets that talk about a coming king who's going to put things right. And of course, that's there. But what we need to recognize is that the Old Testament witness to Jesus is actually far richer and more varied than that. Um, certain key events in Israel's history Certain key figures like Moses and David, certain rituals, offices like the prophet, priest, and king, even the temple, all of these things are shadows of Christ. They are anticipations of Christ. And in all of these diverse ways, the Old Testament is telling us to look forward to the coming one, to Jesus himself. And what Jesus is saying here is that the institution of the temple, with its sacrifices and its drawing near to God, that institution finds its fulfillment in him. He is the ultimate sacrifice who washes away a sinful humanity so that they can draw near to the sacred presence of God, the life-giving presence of God. He is that temple. And the reason he's the temple is because of what John tells us in the prologue. The eternal son, who is himself God, became flesh, became a human being. So to be in the presence of Jesus is to be in the presence of God. Jesus is the place where heaven meets earth. Jesus is the one who brings us into the life-giving presence of God. That's why people wanted to go to the temple. That's why worshipers who loved the Lord would have been excited to go to the temple. Because it was a symbol of his presence on earth. 
What delighted them? The fact that God is there. Psalm uh, 27 captures this beautifully. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's why they wanted to go to the temple. This is where God is, and his presence is sweet. The glory of God is beautiful, and it satisfies our hearts. And Jesus says, I am the way into that joy-giving presence. And I am without sound. No, not anymore. There it is. Man. Uh, I'm the temple. I'm the fulfillment of that longing to draw near to God. I'm the ultimate sacrifice that takes away sin that we might draw near to God. Now, I think this has tremendous relevance for all of us in a variety of ways. But one thing it, it says to modern people uh, who hunger for spiritual experience is that that experience can be found in Jesus. A lot of modern people are, are looking for some sort of transcendent experience that will give them joy and meaning. Uh, it's one of the reasons people come from all over the world to go to Sedona, uh, to sit. Do you sit in a vortex? I'm not sure exactly how it works. Uh, Sedona is supposed to have these vortexes where some sort of energy comes out of the earth and it's supposed to be very therapeutic and it's even a mystical experience. So people flock from all over the place uh, to, to come into contact with a vortex. Right? Or, or people are interested in various Native American rituals that promise a kind of uh, ec- state of ecstasy that will bring uh, spiritual fulfillment. Or people are drawn to transcendental meditation and horoscopes and tarot cards. There are all these alternative spiritualities that are spiritual dead ends. Uh, they will ultimately destroy your soul, but they do speak to man's hunger to be in communion with the transcendent reality that will deeply fulfill them. We were created for God and to know God and to live with him at the center of our lives. Our hearts are restless until they find the rest in him. And part of the tragedy of being human in a fallen world is that we seek to to satisfy that longing for God with work, with romantic relationships, with pleasures, with money, with pseudo-spiritualities like transcendental meditation, and all of those are ultimately dead ends. We're drinking from dirty puddles instead of going to the fountain of living waters. But Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. I'm the place at which man encounters God and finds the spiritual fulfillment that he longs for. As uh, St. Augustine says at the beginning of his great work, The Confessions, the thought of you, God, stirs him, man, so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you because you made us for yourself And our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until we come back to God and enter once again his sacred presence. I was recently at a store uh, near my home. There was a college-age young man uh, who said something that sort of caught my attention. I forget what it was. It was something like, you know, I'm so thankful for another day of life. I was like, oh, that sounds vaguely Christian. Are you a Christian? And when I asked him if he was a Christian, like his eyes lit up and he just started gushing. He told me that he had recently been converted and he just started telling me about how Jesus had changed his life. Uh, he, he started telling me about, and he was just very frank with me, uh, how he had lived in sexual impurity and how he was uh, deep into, into the use of various drugs. But now he's found Jesus 
And he's, and he's happy in Christ. And all of those things that were once so attractive to him, all those pleasures, he doesn't want them anymore because he has Jesus. Like what he wants to do now is tell people about Jesus. He said he got in trouble with his employer for being too enthusiastic of an evangelist. I wish more of us had that problem, by the way. Uh, he, he was telling me about how he's, he's meeting with old friends of his and how they're receiving Jesus and they're going to be baptized together. It's all just gushing out of him. What did he find? He, he, he found Jesus. He found life. He found the joy of living in God's presence. That's what Jesus is offering to all of us. Freedom from the tyranny of created pleasures comes from drinking deeply from the joy that God himself gives. Drink from that fountain. If you're a Christian, that privilege is for you. Don't neglect it. Delight yourself in communion with the Lord and find the fulfillment you were created to know in him. Third thing and final thing, Jesus knows us completely, knows us truly. Uh, he knows our heart. Uh, we're told that many believed or trusted in his name when they saw the signs. On the face of it, that seems like a good thing. But what we will see uh, in a few places in John is that some of the people who are described as believing actually fall short of truth saving faith. They might be initially drawn to Jesus in, in, in a way. They might, there might be a positive response, but it's something less than full conversion. And that's the case here. So they see the signs, they respond positively. But Jesus, being God, knows the heart of man. There's a pun. Uh, in, in the original Greek in this passage, in, in 23 it says, many trusted in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them, and it's the same word. Right? They, were they were trusting in him, but he didn't trust in them. He recognized that they weren't true followers, and therefore didn't count them as such. But he understood exactly what was happening in their heart. One commentator notes that it's precisely this intimate knowledge of every single person in every heart that explains how Jesus is able to deal so differently with the different characters we see in the Gospel of John. In one instance, he can be very tender with a woman at the well, or he can be very um, uh, stern with religious leaders. Jesus knows the heart of man perfectly, and he always responds in exactly the right way. He knows you, and he knows the most intimate workings of your heart better than even you do. Incidentally, he still loves you. Just think about that fact for a moment. Everything there is to know about you is laid bare before Jesus, and he still loves you. You can't scare him away. But uh, we recognize that our knowledge of ourselves is imperfect, don't we? Have you ever had this experience? Uh, perhaps you didn't consciously tell yourself this, but you thought that you were at a place of spiritual maturity where certain actions were no longer possible for you. Right, lashing at your kids and saying something really horrible. Right, you know, you, you've sort of matured beyond that point. But you find yourself in a moment that brings shame and sorrow doing exactly that, lashing at your kid. And you're horrified and surprised. I didn't know that there was still that much darkness left. I didn't realize I'm still capable of that level of immaturity and sin in my life. I didn't know that I, it was really that bad. It is. Uh, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably worse. Uh, we, don't, we don't know our own hearts and, and, and even our own motives. Like, there are all, a lot of times competing motives. On the one hand, we want to do, want to help people. There's often other motives, like we want recognition for other people, and we're not always entirely aware. Jesus sees everything perfectly. 
He knows exactly why we do what we do. He knows why we are the way that we are. And that means that we can trust him to always do what is best for us. Everything that he decrees for you is based on a perfect knowledge of who you are and what you most need. Do you believe that? Everything he decrees for your life is exactly what you need, and it's a result of his intimate knowledge of who you are and what is best for you. So our response to that should be to say, Lord, I don't understand why this challenge has come, but I know you know me. I know you know what I need. And so I'm not going to grumble and complain about this difficulty. I'm going to simply trust that you know what's best and submit and thereby honor you. That's the way we should view challenges. We should rest in Jesus' perfect knowledge, not complain and submit to him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that we would have more of the zeal that you exhibited in this episode. Grant us to not remain indifferent when the name of our God is trampled underfoot. Grant us to work and to labor and to pray that the name of God would be more and more magnified in our community and in our lives as individuals. Father, we also ask that even in this age, we would experience something of the joy of your presence that we will experience fully when Christ returns. Grant us to know even now the peace and the joy that surpasses understanding. Grant our communion with you and our fellowship with you to deepen and grant the sweetness of fellowship to grow. Amen.